God, for the gift of another day, we are grateful. Uh, may your peace and your presence and your spirit be among us. May you be with uh, all those uh, who consider themselves a part of the storyline, who are here, whether they're traveling for spring break or not feeling well. May your presence be with them. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and the gift of open hearts this morning. Through Christ our Lord we pray, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It, I think, it's not even really an argument, probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. Fair? Uh, So I wonder if we couldn't start with a little bit of conversation. Um, When you hear John 3.16, even if it's just seeing the name John and those three letters, what comes to mind? What memories or images? What do you think of when you hear John 3.16? (laughs) Yeah. Is it whosoever it? <laughs> Shall it? Okay. I think of uh, like Tim Tebow and uh, a lot of people just putting it on uh, signs at football games. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think of. I think of just uh, it being a cultural piece rather than a story. Yeah. Remember the, the guy started. Uh, I think in the 80s, wore a rainbow wig. John 3.16 first went to the Super Bowl and then started going to all these. Uh, he's in prison now. Uh, he kidnapped three people because he thought the, the Jesus was coming. And so, um, tragic irony, I don't know. Um, what else? What do you think of when you hear John 3.16? Yeah. I'm with you on that one. Tragically, my tribe uh, that I grew up with would find that somewhat um, the, the verse misleading because it was we had to argue about whether baptism was essential or needed, and that verse was used by other tribes to express the love of God. Yeah. My tribe. But that wasn't sufficient. Yeah. So, we got an argument into it. Right. <laughs> I, I can't remember what point it was in my adult life where I experienced the shift from all the ways that had been used uh, in my childhood, same tribe, uh, that this was a verse that was used to articulate who was in and who was out. Uh, Which, given what the verse actually says, um, and what Jesus says in John, that's really, really pretty terrible. Uh, That a verse that is fundamentally trying to articulate something about who God is, specifically a God of love, uh, and it's often used, or was often used, still is, 
uh, as something to point to to figure out who's in and who's out. It is, um, again, well known, and it has a certain flow to it. God loves the world. God loves the world, and so God gave God's only Son um, that whoever believes in Him won't perish but be saved. There's a, there's a movement to it, a movement that is not at all similar to the actual context out of which Jesus says these words. Uh, this is one of the strangest interactions that, quite frankly, makes very little sense to me. This conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, an expert in the law, and he comes to Jesus as a teacher himself. And he identifies Jesus as a teacher. And John tells us that Nicodemus comes at night. And this is significant because the theme of light and dark is the most consistent, most significant theme that John uses throughout the Gospel. Uh, it's what he opens the Gospel with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. So any time that John uses light or dark, it has a purpose. He's not just being descriptive about the time of day that this happened. He's um, making a claim. Some would argue that uh, this is a sign that Nicodemus is being a bit nefarious, and he has some tricks up his sleeve, but I don't think that's the case. Because John's also pretty good about giving us a warning when um, there's a trap that's about to be set. Nicodemus sees something in Jesus. He recognizes some form of light, but he comes under the cover of darkness um, because he's not quite yet ready uh, for others to know that he's engaging in conversation with Jesus. Right? So there's something curious about this man that Nicodemus wants to explore, but he's really not willing to risk others seeing him do it. And so he comes and he identifies Jesus as one who has powers. You've done powerful things, and surely God must be with you. And he has some questions to be answered, but I'm not sure that Jesus answers any question that Nicodemus has, or any question that Nicodemus even thinks to answer, because right off the beginning, Jesus throws this crazy, only those who are born again will see the kingdom. And Nicodemus' response makes sense to me. Like, wait, how is this possible? How is someone who is old supposed to be born again? Are they to enter the womb a second time? And Jesus then responds with continuing more difficult metaphors. You must be born of water and spirit. The wind blows where it pleases because we need more metaphors. Jesus, thank you. So it is the same with everyone who is born with the Spirit. And Nicodemus then asks the question, how can this be? And I hear it not so much as Nicodemus asking Jesus, how is this possible? But more along the line of, wait, what is happening here? What in the world is going on? When Jesus then responds with, you are Israel's teacher, and don't you understand? I want to say, no, Jesus, no one understands what you're talking about. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus continues. Um, 
We speak of things and testify to what we have seen, but still people don't don't accept our testimony. And if 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 the birth and being reborn and born of water and spirit and conversation about the wind, if all of that isn't enough, Jesus throws in this line about Moses, calling back to Exodus. It is just all a little bit confusing to me. And then we get to this normalcy, this 316, which we're familiar, and we can breathe deep, like, okay, this makes sense. But it's still within the context that it's hard to understand. And I think um, this is where we find that the chapters and verses that we have in our Bible are generally not helpful. Um, And also the lectionary sometimes makes weird um, choices. Because this story, I think, doesn't begin actually chapter 3, verse 1. I think it actually starts in the last three verses of chapter 2. So, this is what it says. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So all of these people are seeing signs that Jesus is performing, but Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. And then Nicodemus comes along, and I think it becomes a case study for all of these people that Jesus has just identified. That Nicodemus comes pointing to the powerful signs and saying this, this means you clearly must be from God, But Jesus wants Nicodemus to know that the primary expression of God is not powerful signs. It is self-giving, cruciformed love. But it is not in the power, but in the willingness to enter the suffering. Or to put it another way, Nicodemus says the signs that you are performing are proof that God is with you. But Jesus says the real proof that God is present is found in death on a cross. The story in Numbers uh, 21 that Jesus alludes to about Moses holding up a snake is a story that as the, um, God's people were traveling through the desert, they get a little bit tired of the manna, and they essentially accuse Moses like, hey, did you bring us out here to die? This food is terrible, and this is awful. And so the text says God sends venomous snakes, uh, and a bunch of people die. And so the people come back to Moses and say, hey, we kind of screwed up, sorry. Uh, We've sinned against God. Can, Can we stop the snakes, please? So God tells Moses to build a bronze snake and to hold it up on a pole. And anyone who looks to that snake won't die. Right? That's a strange story. But this theme of being lifted up for John that he says over and over again, is constantly pointing to God and death on a cross. So what is behind all of this suffering, this invitation into death? Um, This is where uh, Kirk Cameron and I probably part ways. The starting place of God's willingness to enter suffering and death is not our sin, and it's not some sort of separation from God. The starting place for
for God's willingness to enter suffering is God's love for the world. Period. Wendell Berry, who's a a well-known poet, wrote this great book called Jaber Crow. Uh, It's about a man in Portsmouth, Port William something, um, Kentucky. He's a barber. And the book sort of explores his, uh, the little community that he creates in the barber shop. He went to um, seminary for a little bit, but didn't like any of the answers that the professors gave, so he decided not to be a minister, he decided to be a barber. And throughout the book, uh, Wendell Berry is comparing, sort of implicitly and subversively, the community uh, that Jaber Crow fosters in the barber shop against the community uh, that is nurtured in the church, where Jaber Crow also is the janitor. And uh, at one point, Jaber Crow says this. He says, All my life I had heard preachers quoting John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. They would preach on the second part of the verse to show the easiness of being saved. Only believe. Where I hung now, Jaber says, was the first part. If God loved the world even before the event at Bethlehem, that meant he loved it as it was, with all its faults. That would be hell itself, in part. He would be like a father with a wayward child whom he can't help and can't forget. But it would be even worse than that, for he would also know the wayward child and the course of its waywardness and its suffering. That his love contains all the world does not show that the world is hell. Uh, Sorry. That his love contains all the world does not show that the world does not matter, or that he and we do not suffer it unto death. It shows that the world is hell only in part, but his love can contain it only by compassion and mercy, which, if not hell entirely, would be at least a crucifixion. So Jaber Crow is trying to say that God's love precedes all things, that it is God's love that holds the world together to the point that God is willing to enter the suffering. So uh, we, we've been, we're trying to talk about mission, simplifying the mission. And so I'm curious, how is our understanding of mission affected if we believe uh, that God's love is the starting place for the world? That God loves the world as it is. How does that affect our mission to and with and for the world? Sorry, say it again. Is it fixing people? Right, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's good. That's well said, Duncan. What else? What are the implications? 
of mission, of God's love for the world as it is, is a starting place. Other thoughts. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of freeing, right? When we don't, when we don't have to start off with uh, this, this is an exaggeration, but that God hates you. Uh, that seems to me to be a pretty difficult and terrible place to start a relationship with another human being. Uh, if it takes away the 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 judgment, um, then we actually get to see the other person for who they are, um, which hopefully is a gift, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think people know when they're a project uh, and then have zero interest, or it's really difficult to engage when. As Duncan said, if people feel like you're there to, to fix them. I also, um, Markeely made me think of this, that if we trust that God's love for the world is the foundational principle out of which um, we engage in life and mission with others, um, then we have to assume that we actually have something to learn and gain from them. That they have something about God to teach us that it's not just I have something to offer and I hope you take it or you're going to go to hell um, but that you have something to show me about who God is yeah I'm kind of thinking something like that if we come back to like that everyone is maybe God's image then there's a different posture that is yeah. like if you have a piece of God's image that maybe I need to understand or love you know like I don't need you to I don't need to try to just change you or renew over like, I don't have all the things to teach you. Like, there's probably a part of God's image in you that I need to learn. Yeah. 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 Any other thoughts? I do think that from where I came from, my tribe was previous, that there was this idea, and I don't know if it was intentional, but we are up high. Yeah. We are in this place of... Um, 
elitism, yeah. and we have this this gift and this position that so when you approach people, you're approaching people out of that elitism and that. But then it's supposed to be, but in love, you know, yeah. in love, I want you to come right. to where I am. Right. In love, I want to hold you and give you what I have. You know, come. So it it really changes your posture if you are looking at I'm loved and you're loved. Yeah. And I just we're just engaging in friendship and relationship opposed to where you see yourself. Yeah. The posture in which you see yourself changes how you approach me. So that it can be so. It's sad because I think back how many people I must have been so off putting, <laughs> you know, when I approached them mm. that way. Yeah. So the manifestation of God's love that John points to uh, is death on the cross, is the lifting up of Jesus. Um, so the primary expression of God's love for the world is entering the suffering and death. So that's the second question I want us to, to chat about. What, what are the implications for mission uh, if the primary way that God expresses this love that God has for creation is entering the suffering and death? What implications does that have for mission? Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is the question <laughs> right? No, don't go ahead. It takes a lot of pressure off because I just think I think it's human nature. I hope I'm not just planning to to go in the things and want a win and want to succeed. Right. Want to have like pretty ready Tyron wants to tell great stories, and I have spectacularly failed at lots of things, and to think that. Yeah. At the time, too, many people takes a lot of pressure off me. What what that what it means to be on that path? Okay. Duncan. I have no idea about what it means. Okay. It's like the most mind blowing thing. All right. Uh, I think it changes when we see it. 
Who we see what? Ah, yeah, yeah. Please. No, that's okay. Sharon for God's love for the world. God's love for the world that God moved his Toyota pickup. Were you done? Yeah. Okay. Someone else? Implications for God entering suffering and death as the primary expression of God's love. What's that? There's something, and I don't know, this could be because I just lean towards cynicism and depression anyway. Um, but for me, there's something good news. It's good news to think that the most darkest corners of the world are not the places that God is absent, but actually the very place that God is the most present. Um, the church has spent a long time around sin management, right? Um, but the ultimate enemy is not sin, it's death. Sin is a byproduct of death. And that God entering suffering and death is God saying, I'm joining all of the darkest parts to turn um, and to bless and to make new. And we may not see it, Immediately, um, but it is there. Uh, Ian Morgan Cron, who's an Episcopal priest, he wrote a great autobiography called Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me, um, tells this great story of his conversion. He grew up Baptist, Southern Baptist, but left. Uh, alcoholic father, um, really abusive relationship. And was very angry at God for a very long time uh, about the relationship he had with his dad and the abuse that he suffered. And he has this moment. He, he says he's not charismatic. Like he doesn't get a word from God, really, ever. Um, but his conversion happened when he, when he was in college. And he heard the voice of God apologize to him. And he heard God say, 
how I treated you was wrong, and I'm sorry. Like God says to, to um, Ian, um, you're right, I've done you wrong, and I apologize. And so uh, it is his conversion, and he's trying to find his way back uh, to faith, and, but the story bothers him because it doesn't fit uh, the narratives of God that he's always had, right? That God can never be wrong. Uh, that God doesn't make mistakes. Uh, and so he talks to pastors and priests. He talks to scholars. And um, most everyone is fairly baffled by it. They're like, oh, yeah, that's a little uncomfortable. I'm not sure what to do. Until he's standing in a line at a potluck um, with this older lady uh, who he tells the story to. And she says, of course God did that. Because love always stoops. Love always stoops. Nicodemus sort of disappears from the story. Um, he doesn't respond to Jesus. We see him later in the Gospel of John. And so we don't know necessarily what he took away from it. Um, he comes to Jesus' defense in some ways. Uh, so he definitely saw the light that is Jesus. But we really don't know how he responded. And I don't always know with confidence what in the world Jesus means when he says things like, you must be born of water and spirit and the conversations of the wind. I don't always know what he means when he points to Moses and that story of the snake. But I do know this, that to be people on mission, um, in whatever form that takes, in our neighborhoods, um, in our homes, in our places of work, in our third spaces. To be people of mission fundamentally believes that we trust this, that God loves the world. As Javer Crow says, God loves it with all of its faults. That that is what precedes all things, and that suffering is not the absence of God, but the presence of God. Uh, let's pray. God, as we um, wrestle with what it means to be uh, people that seek to follow you and your way of love, um, I ask that you be patient with us, uh, that we're not, um, like Nicodemus, we're, we're not going to get it right. We're not always going to understand it. Um, point us, God, to those people who are embodying your love for us to learn. Um, help us to trust uh, in the way of uh, suffering and death, self-giving love for the world around us. Um, give us courage, God, to continue in love even when we don't um, have all the right answers. Uh, give us courage, God, um, to trust that you are with us uh, even on uh, the darkest, most difficult day. Uh, we pray these things, God, through the one who is raised on a cross, the one who is raised from the dead, uh, Jesus Christ. Amen.